You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a collection of the best urban legends, unexplained happenings, and mysterious sightings from both sides of the Atlantic. A podcast where we, we believe the only difference between fact and fiction is that fiction has to make sense. I'm your host, Kean, and I'm broadcasting from the Wide Atlantic Weird Bunker, which is currently located somewhere in deepest, darkest Essex. Tonight I'm drinking Black Dog from Elgood's Brewery. It's a light ale with a malty roasted flavour and a spooky black dog on the bottle, perfect for that folkloric feel. Once again you join me as I'm sitting by a roaring fire, so if you hear any mysterious clicks or taps in the background, that's what it is. Now, on this episode, we have a great lineup of strange tales for you, starting with my own report on the very first modern UFO sighting, the famous Kenneth Arnold sighting from way back in 1947. Then I've got a little personal anecdote for you regarding the American Eugenics Project. It's definitely one of the weirdest things that's ever happened to me. And finally, we have a little story I've put together on the same topic. Find out what happens when a twisted scientist takes his eugenics crusade into the swamps of New Jersey in the Pine Barrens Expedition. So that's what's coming up. Stay tuned for all manner of weirdness from home and abroad in Wide Atlantic Weird. Here we go with the first segment, which I'm calling the first UFO. It's uh, my report on the Kenneth Arnold sighting. Uh, Basically, anyone who has any interest in the paranormal, in particular UFOs, will be familiar with this case. It's the very first one that helped to launch the modern UFO movement back in the late 40s. So much has come out of this. Uh, Basically, everything that we now associate with the UFO movement uh, has its roots one way or another in this case and the things that followed it. So I thought it would be interesting to take a closer look uh, at this case in particular. The details of it uh, are often overlooked and actually I found some really strange and interesting things in it, things I didn't know and I've actually had to change my tune on a few aspects of this story as well. So, mm, you know, I'm feeling a little bit strange about this. It's possibly the least skeptical thing I've ever written on a paranormal topic. That doesn't mean that I necessarily think the subject is real but upon upon getting stuck into this, I found quite a lot to take seriously in it. So you can have a listen and see what you think. The first UFO, Kenneth Arnold and the 1947 sighting that created a 20th century legend. Writers of the paranormal love to backdate things. As soon as a strange new phenomena appears, they like nothing more than to pore over the history books and crank newspaper articles and pick out oddities from the past that seem to fit in with the new anomaly. When reports of the Loch Ness Monster first surfaced in 1933, quite possibly inspired by the Swamp Monster from King Kong released the same year and looking a dead ringer for Nessie, This brand new monster was given a more storied history by researchers. They tenuously tied Nessie to mythical medieval accounts of St. Columba defeating a dragon on the Ness River. Connecting the monster to an odd story from history 
was an attempt to make it seem more real. Likewise, when Kenneth Arnold, businessman and private pilot, reported that he had seen nine shining disc-like objects flying in formation above Mount Rainier in Washington State in June 1947, it's no exaggeration to say that a new phenomena was born. Immediately, writers on the new subject of flying saucers, or UFOs as they were to be dubbed, hit the history books and duly found many dubious cases of strange things seen in our skies in the past, in an attempt to grant legitimacy to their new interest. Think about it, we all know what an alien spaceship looks like, right? It's saucer-shaped, of course. And yet, when you think about it, there's no obvious reason why this should be the case. After all, an alien is, by definition, a creature we know nothing about. There's no reason why it should conform to any preconception we might have. The possibilities should be endless. And yet, for almost 80 years, our pop culture conception of alien ships has been dominated by flying saucers. And it's all because of one guy, Kenneth Arnold. Now, the Arnold sighting stands as the undoubted ground zero of the modern UFO movement. Everything that has come since, flying saucers in B-movies, Roswell, alien greys, abduction lore, hybridization programs, alien and government conspiracy theories, the X-Files, it all has as its root this one man, and whatever the heck it was that he saw in the sunny skies of Washington that day in 1947. People have, of course, cited older events, trying to create a sort of prehistory for the UFO phenomena. They point to flying shields and fiery dragons from the Bible and from ancient literature. They consider the phantom airship phenomena of the late 19th century, and they look to the Swedish ghost rocket flap of the 1930s. And of course, they mention the mysterious Foo Fighters of the Second World War, the kind that had nothing to do with Dave Grohl. Each of these examples, while fascinating, and I am tempted to go on at length about all of them, when examined closely in the correct context, proves to be clearly a product of its own time, place and anxieties. And each, to me, is quite incompatible with modern, post-1947 UFOs. That is, unless you believe the space visitors upped their tech more or less in line with human developments, visiting us in Zeppelins in the 1890s, but waiting to wow us with their shiny discs until after World War II. So, to me, it's clear that modern UFOs start with Kenneth Arnold. The basic facts of his sighting are simple and often repeated. Here we go. Arnold was the owner of a successful business selling anti-fire sprinkling systems. He owned his own aeroplane, a small two-seater called a Call Air Model A, and was a keen and skilled pilot. On June 24th, 1947, Arnold was flying from Chehalis to Yakima in Washington State. One of his hobbies was searching for missing planes in the hopes of claiming a reward. On this particular trip, he flew a little out of his way to search for a downed Marine Corps transport plane, a C-46. Giving up his search in the vicinity of Mount Rainier at about 3pm, Arnold was startled by a bright flash of light. He looked about, alarmed that he might be flying dangerously close to another aircraft, but the nearest plane he could see was a DC-4 about 15 miles away. The skies were clear and the wind was low. Suddenly, Arnold saw to his left nine bright flashes. 
They seemed like silvery objects flying in a chain. He turned his head and swiveled his plane. They stayed in position. They were no reflections of light against his glasses or his windows. They were moving fast. So fast, in fact, that Arnold ruled out the possibility of them being geese, which had struck him as the most obvious explanation. As they moved in front of Mount Rainier, he saw that, though shiny, they were darker than the snow behind them. What exactly they looked like is complicated. Making sense of the back and forth of quotes Arnold made, or was reported to have made over the years, is difficult. Still, we can come to some kind of consensus. Here are some of the earliest quotes Arnold gave regarding what he saw, in his own words, in the days immediately following his encounter. They were shaped like saucers, and so thin I could hardly see them. They were silvery and shiny and shaped like a pie plate. Half moon shaped, oval in front and convex in the rear. They flew with a particular dipping motion, like a fish flipping in the sun. If one dipped, the others did too. This collection of quotes is from newspaper interviews Arnold gave between June 26th and June 27th. A month later, he drew an image of one of the craft as part of a report to Army Air Force Intelligence. It's almost entirely circular, close to the now classic flying saucer shape, but the rear quarter of it is drawn in sharp lines that come to a point in the back. This is worth bearing in mind, especially as the shape of the craft was to become a focus of furious debate and speculation. When one of the craft briefly flew behind a mountain peak, Arnold did some rough calculation and figured that they were about 23 miles away from his position, and that they might be between 18 and 30 metres across. As the encounter continued, he observed them moving from one peak to another, and again, using some quick and dirty calculations, figured that they were moving at the incredible speed of 1,700 miles per hour. Needless to say, nothing in 1947 was thought to be able to move at 1,700 miles per hour. The strange objects disappeared, Arnold's plane unable to keep up with their fantastic speed. He landed at Yakima and immediately told his story. He seemed unafraid of ridicule, yet also unwilling to attempt to profit from his strange sighting. This, as well as his sober reputation as a businessman and experienced pilot, impressed all who heard his tale. Soon newspapers took up the story, and a new phenomena was born. This is the point of the podcast where I'm supposed to say, at least that's the legend, and then lay out how the details I've just related don't exactly match with the truth. Well, in this case, the famous version I've just related is, as far as we know, more or less true. The one tantalising detail that's missing is, of course, what exactly he saw up there. Let's look at all this more closely. An important part of this story has always been Arnold's credibility as a witness. As Martin Shaw says in his extremely thorough article, Return of the Flying Saucers, Re-Evaluating the Kenneth Arnold UFO Sighting, Arnold's sighting holds a particular importance because of its purity. Arnold was not playing into any UFO mythos because the mythos didn't exist yet. It lends rather a lot of credibility to the story when you think about it. So, who exactly was Kenneth Arnold? By all accounts, the 32-year-old Minnesotan native was a respected businessman and pilot. 
Character reports by friends and colleagues from the time portray him as a confident, experienced airman who did not back down in the face of ridicule. When he first saw the discs, his best guess was that they were some kind of new Air Force craft. Not at all a bad guess, especially in the wake of World War II, and also given what we now know about what was really going on at secret research facilities, for example the famous Area 51. Researchers search in vain for evidence that Arnold was, in any specific way, predisposed to see strange flying craft before June 1947. But could Arnold have been in any way indirectly predisposed to see strange things in the skies? As always, cultural context is everything. Americans living in the wake of World War II were the first generation to live with the fear that death could now come to them from above. They knew the devastation wrought upon Europe by Stuka dive bombers and Hitler's terrible V-2 rockets. Since the 1920s, American pulp magazines had thrilled audiences with tales of creatures from beyond the stars, and of course in 1938, Orson Welles caused a media sensation, if not the full-blown panic often reported, with his newscast version of War of the Worlds. If one wanted to search, there are plenty of potential influences on Arnold's story. But this is strictly conjecture. The fact remains that what Arnold saw was unexpected, unexplained, and pretty rare in science fiction literature pre-1947. There was nothing about his report that even presupposes aliens or spacecraft. Those were interpretations that were bolted on afterwards. The fact remains that to this day, we don't know what Arnold saw. We probably never will. What we do know, however, is that the world was somehow ready for this strange new phenomena. When Arnold landed at Yakima, he flatly told his story, without shame and without embellishment, to some friends working there. By the time he reached Pendleton, Oregon, his next destination, the story had beaten him there, and he was already a minor celebrity. Two days after the sighting, Arnold spoke with his first newspaper, the East Oregonian, and from there, saucer madness spread across the US, and arguably continues to this day. Now, the term saucer, used to describe the craft Arnold saw, has long been a contentious one. There has been a belief that Arnold did not originally describe the craft as being saucer-shaped, but that he instead used the word to describe their movement. The story goes that Arnold described the craft as being boomerang-shaped originally, but that an overzealous reporter, often mentioned to be one Bill Beckett of the East Oregonian, took the word saucer out of context and coined the term flying saucer. Now this is important. Remember, the Arnold sighting is the case zero for the entire UFO phenomena. For years after his report, beginning literally within the first few days, other people began also reporting seeing flying saucers. If Arnold had actually seen a flying boomerang, but newspapers reported that he saw saucers, and then others read about this and saw saucers themselves, well, it heavily implies that the entire thing is nothing but a gigantic case of mass hysteria. Now, skeptics repeated this story for years. I myself believed it for years, and mentioned it on a previous podcast several years ago. But the most up-to-date articles on the subject now show that this is nothing but a myth. A close reading of the papers that spoke to Arnold in the days following his sighting show that he did use words like saucer, 
disc and pie to describe the shape, not the movement of the craft. He does mention the slightly cut back end, so we're not claiming that they were perfectly disc shaped. But it's certainly not true that he described boomerangs in the early days after his sighting. According to Shaw, this myth came about because of Arnold's later book, The Coming of the Saucers, published in 1952. Despite its title, by the time he wrote the book, Arnold was for some reason backing away from the idea of the craft being saucer-shaped. It's fair to say that his story had morphed a little over time, which some do find suspicious, which I think is fair enough. It's in this book that he first claims, As I put it to newsmen in Pendleton, Oregon, they flew like a saucer would if you skipped it across the water. Despite the fact that this quote seems to be absent from any of the newspaper articles from back in 1947. There is a famous picture of Arnold from the period when he wrote his book, holding a drawing of what's clearly a boomerang-shaped craft. Now this picture is usually produced, and I've done this myself, to prove that Arnold's UFOs were not supposed to be saucer-shaped. What is usually not mentioned, however, is that this picture was not intended to represent all of the craft. It's dated to about 1950, by which time Arnold had added the detail that just one of the craft was shaped like a kind of flying wing, the type that the US Air Force was experimenting with in the late 40s. Clearly, at some point, Arnold became reluctant to describe the craft as saucers, even though evidence shows he used this word freely with newspapers back in June 1947, and oddly enough seemed happy to use the words disc and saucer quite frequently in his book as late as 1952. So, who knows why he tried to retcon his story in this way. Perhaps it was to distance his sighting from the flying saucer mania that had engulfed the US, with people reporting saucers in huge numbers all over the country, and a giant saucer landing on the White House lawn in the 1951 film The Day the Earth Stood Still. The term flying saucers had become synonymous with kooks and cranks, so perhaps Arnold just wanted to separate himself from all that. So, why am I making such a big deal out of the exact shape of the craft? Because whatever ammunition sceptics use to discredit this fundamental plank of ufology, it can't fairly be said that Arnold's original sighting conflicts massively with the following wave of saucers. There were saucers, and there were saucers. I don't know what Arnold saw that day, but I believe that he saw something he couldn't explain. Now, some of what came afterwards can be considered a little more suspect. For some people, Arnold's behaviour after the sighting is not quite as squeaky clean as his behaviour before it. For one thing, he was what sceptics call a repeater. That is, once this new phenomena had gotten into his head, he encountered it again and again. He had several more UFO sightings during his lifetime, but it must be said that, unlike for example Betty Hill, more on her in a future episode I think, whose formative UFO experience caused her to see saucers everywhere by the end of her life, Arnold reported about 10 sightings over the next 20 years, and for a guy flying 100 hours every month on business, it's a pretty low number. Most of the reports were unremarkable too, none being as dramatic as his original sighting. He was always cautious, and regarded many of them as being probably misidentifications of regular objects. 
He carried a movie camera with him in his plane too, but only captured a few clips of blurs and reflections. Many of his videos he actually downplayed as being of little importance. Now to me he comes off like a keen enthusiast, hoping for a glimpse of something special, rather than a fantasist seeing little green men everywhere. And though his story did change a little over the years, it definitely never veered into the realms of fantasy. Though he did favour the extraterrestrial hypothesis, he never expanded much on what had happened. He never met spacemen, he never became a contactee. Compared to other witnesses of the age, he was positively restrained. And speaking of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, in the early days of flying saucers there were other, stranger hypotheses floating about. One of these, which Arnold did on occasion consider to be a possibility, was that UFOs might perhaps be some kind of unknown animals living in our upper atmosphere. This is always remarked upon to be reminiscent of the creatures from Arthur Conan Doyle's story The Horror of the Heights, a personal favourite of mine. Somewhat disappointing to me that this idea seems to have largely disappeared from UFO culture shortly afterwards. Within a few weeks, reports came in that others too had seen Arnold's shining discs, with at least one case of a man who claimed to have independently corroborated Arnold's sighting at the same time. These reports, however, were usually by people who had read about the original Mount Rainier incident in the papers, and certainly none of them actually predate Arnold's sighting. After that, sightings in the northwest ramped up. On July 4th, 1947, an airline crew found their plane being paced by between five and nine mysterious disks over Idaho. Arnold himself met with the pilot and thought the sighting genuine, while admitting that most others were probably a result of overactive imaginations. Again, he applied caution. Disks were photographed over Phoenix, Arizona on July 7th and over Tulsa, Oklahoma on July 12th. A few odd Air Force prototypes such as the Flying Wing and the Flying Flapjack did exist at this time, but records seem to have borne out the Air Force's claim that they were not in the vicinity at the time of the sightings. Whatever the truth, saucer sightings soon multiplied to fill every state. The military took the issue seriously enough to investigate Arnold's report. This eventually resulted in Project Sign, the Air Force's UFO investigation unit, which became Project Grudge, and finally, the more famous, Project Blue Book. And in early July 1947, during the initial saucer flap that followed Arnold's report, a workman named William Brazel began to wonder if some strange debris he had found on a ranch outside a small southwestern town was somehow connected to the flying disks he had heard so much about. The US Air Force took an interest in this notion, and after an initial investigation, released a report stating that they had in fact recovered a crashed saucer. Another key aspect had been added to UFO lore. The name of the town was, of course, Roswell, New Mexico. Also in the immediate wake of the Mount Rainier sighting, Arnold served as a kind of expert witness in the famous, or infamous, Maury Island incident. This is an important case as it introduced several more key elements to the infant UFO mythos, elements that are still key to the lore today, government cover-ups, and of course, the mysterious men in black. Its basis was two men who claimed that a damaged UFO had passed over their ship 
off Maury Island, Washington State, dropping from it some kind of molten slag. They had collected some of this material, they said, and a proper analysis of it would prove it to be of a non-terrestrial origin. Problem was, one of the men, Fred Crisman, had a history of writing to papers with bizarre stories. This was not his first one. Sucked into this crazy tale by pulp science fiction magazine writer Ray Palmer, Arnold seems to have been almost swallowed up by the saucer mythology he himself had unwittingly spawned. To many, Arnold was unacceptably naive to have become involved in this obvious hoax. Reading Arnold's own account of the Maury Island incident in his book actually gives me the odd feeling that Arnold again applied a certain amount of his usual caution, but that he was also so keen to get some hard physical evidence for flying saucers by this time that he had made himself vulnerable to Crisman's duplicity. All in all, it's a case that really deserves to be tackled in depth, making it, sadly, a story for another day. Overall, the Kenneth Arnold sighting must be seen as the cornerstone of the UFO phenomena. Arnold's own character seems to have gone a long way in establishing the credibility of the subject, and a closer examination of his life does not, to my mind, shake this notion much. The idea that newspapers created flying saucers by misquoting Arnold on what exactly he had seen, which I myself believed for years, does seem not to have been true. I don't know what Kenneth Arnold saw in the June Washington skies that day in 1947. The various sceptical explanations, from geese that were flying at 9,000 feet to incredibly slow-moving coordinated meteor shards, have always struck me as fanciful and somewhat unsatisfying. I don't think we're going to solve this by trying to come up with real-life physical things that somehow resemble Arnold's flying discs. I think the answer probably lies in the realm of the human brain, and the strange ways in which we interpret the outside world. I don't know what Kenneth Arnold saw, but I know that the 20th century was never to be the same again. As the man himself put it, What are the flying saucers? That is the big question in the minds of a great many people. That they are real is not a matter for conjecture. The evidence presented in this book precludes that. They can be accepted by even the most sceptical as a factual phenomena. We have presented no theory. No astronomer has yet substantiated the claims of those who say that they are from another planet or even another solar system. All reports concerning disks that have crashed with little men in them have been impossible to substantiate. What are the flying disks? We are hardly so brash as to say. But keep your weather eye aloft and keep your camera handy. You may be the one to secure the information necessary to answer the greatest question of our day. And when you develop your film, if you see the insignia of either the United States or the Soviet Air Force on the objects you have captured with your lens, turn them over to the nearest military intelligence branch and keep your mouth shut about them. It'll save you a lot of trouble. That was the first UFO, my report on the 1947 Kenneth Arnold sighting. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any thoughts on it yourself, please do feel free to get in touch. As usual, uh, I can be found on Twitter, at Strange Ireland. Perhaps you feel I've been a little gentle on this one, but all I can say is, when I looked into it, I didn't have too much to say about his character. I didn't find too much about his character or about his sighting that struck me as a really serious red flag. 
Like I said in the report, he seems to have been a decent guy who saw something strange that he genuinely couldn't explain. So, if you have your own ideas, I'd love to hear about them. Or if there's more to the story that I haven't covered, please do get in touch about it. Now, I have a small personal anecdote to share on a strange topic, though a different topic. I'm going to get into uh, the slightly troubling topic of the American Eugenics Project. Now, obviously the most famous eugenics project out there was the one done by Nazi Germany in the 1930s, but not as well known as that they actually took a lot of their ideas from the Americans who actually got in on the game a little bit earlier. So if you've not come across the term before, eugenics is the uh, pseudo-scientific idea that some people and some races are better than others and that therefore uh, you can practice a sort of racial hygiene by removing undesirable elements from your populations. The manner in which this generally manifests itself is government programs that will sterilize people who they think are somehow unfit, sometimes criminals, sometimes people with hereditary diseases, sometimes people with uh, deformations or physical problems of different kinds. It, uh, in its worst form, I suppose you could say, uh, this involves uh, exterminating people of particular races as well as the Nazis famously did. Now, several years ago, I spent a bit of time working at a place in the American Midwest and I was working at an outdoor nature center. Now, the property was huge. It was hundreds of acres across, one of the biggest places I'd ever worked at. And there were a lot of strange aspects to the site. Uh, it was mostly forest, but the forest hadn't been there technically very long. Uh, you could tell that there had been buildings and stuff there earlier. Sometimes you'd be walking through the forest and you would see uh, a classic American red fire hydrant just poking up out of the undergrowth as a reminder that there had once been streets and houses. There were the edges of uh, footpaths and, and curbs and stuff as well, uh, just as a reminder of what had been there in the past. Now, a little bit of research showed that it had once been a lunatic asylum uh, and I managed to get a hold of some documents uh, talking about this building, this, this institute, over the years. It had originally been a Victorian institution and over the years it had many strange and rather unfortunate names. I, I seem to recall that it, it had gone under the names of uh, uh, qu quite nasty things like uh, Centre for Imbeciles and Idiots or for Mongoloids and, uh, and Feeble-Minded People, that sort of thing, which I suppose it's worth recalling. Once upon a time, all of those um, now offensive terms were actually technical and scientific terms. I, I sometimes feel that uh, the language that changes the fastest is uh, medical language relating to such things because those terms become uh, used as a source of abuse so quickly. Anyway, uh, when we were new to this uh, particular centre, our boss took us on a walk of the grounds and there were two, in the middle of the woods, there were two graveyards. Now, one of the graveyards seemed like a fairly ordinary one, while the second graveyard had something a little bit strange about it. And I don't say this often. I'm not someone who's given to feeling, you know, auras or, or feeling like there's particular energies to different places. But for one of the only times in my life, I was brought somewhere and I immediately had a very negative reaction to it. I just felt there was something wrong at this place. There were many graves that did not have stones, but just had plaques uh, stuck into the ground. And when I looked more closely, each plaque had a date on it, and each date was one month apart. So we had this situation where a large number of people had died almost exactly one month apart every month from the years going from about 1905 all the way to the end of the 1920s, if I recall. So there were a lot of graves, and it all seemed a little bit mysterious and a little bit bad. And right in the middle, there was a plaque explaining that 
these graves had been re-excavated and the names had been tracked down and, and found in the year 2000, implying that originally they were unmarked graves, which made it seem even more sinister. Now, the plaque didn't go into details about what had taken place here, but it said that this had all been done, this uh, revamping of the site had been done, so that this terrible event might never be forgotten, but would never be repeated. So, you know, fast and loose story. I never found out exactly what had been going on there at that time anyway, but clearly something was up. These people were <clears throat> dying with a regularity, which I found unsettling. And this, keep in mind that this uh, graveyard was uh, down at the end of a railway track. And in, uh, you sometimes use, but infrequently use, railway track for freight, not for um, not for passengers. So, you know, at night time, sometimes even from our house, you could hear the train going by. And I thought of it going p down through the woods and past the graveyard, which I found a little bit spooky. Many years later, completely by accident, I was reading about the eugenics, the American eugenics program. And I came across uh, a note that said that there had been a particular institute which had in fact been the centre of the eugenics programme for the entire American Midwest. And with a little bit of research I was able to find out that it was in fact the same place. So when I worked there, this had been many years later, it hadn't operated since the 1960s, by which time it had several farms on site where inmates, if you want to call them that, who were considered... Uh, um, shall we say, uh, capable of working, were working on farms, producing food, that sort of thing. Whereas by the time I showed up, all of that land had been let go and had, most of it had turned into forest. But like I said, once in a while you would see some little bit of evidence poking out uh, to show that there had once been buildings and structures and an entire village on site, which, thinking about it now, seemed quite sinister. There were other aspects of the site that were a little bit spooky. If you took the trails in the woods going in the right direction, you would find what was called the body hold, which was if somebody died during the winter in that part of the Midwest, the ground would be so frozen and covered in snow that you couldn't bury anybody, so the bodies were put into this building. Uh, by the time I was on the scene, there was nothing that remained of it except a kind of a stone, a stone shack, kind of like the sort of thing you see in those urban legend memes about scary clowns. We'll be covering scary clowns at some point, don't worry. Lastly, there was a, a tunnel, which was uh, in the middle, again, in the middle of the forest, had a railway line going over the top of it, and seemed to have had its uh, place in local folklore. So by, you know, going through online forums, I managed to find out that local teenagers had quite a lot of urban legends about this. They tended to call it Hell's Tunnel, and it was covered in quite spooky graffiti all the way through, and it was almost a quarter of a mile long. I used to go running on site occasionally on my days off, and I do remember that the Hell Tunnel was so long that if you were running through the middle of it, there came an uneasy point in the middle where it felt as though the end and the, the front, the beginning of it and the end of it, neither of them were getting any closer to you. And you really felt like you'd been swallowed up in this kind of darkness, this kind of spooky darkness. If you had a torch or a light of any kind with you, uh, you were rewarded with uh, really, really unsettling graffiti <laughs> all around you. So it wasn't a very nice place. Um, on the online forums, I found out that there was a local belief that there had been underground bunkers as part of the old Victorian asylum structure, and that Hell's Tunnel led to one of them. I spent many fruitless days uh, prowling through the forest around the tunnel trying to find this, uh, and on one occasion, at least, I was surprised that 
somebody or something seemed to be tracking me in the woods. It, uh, I saw a bright blue colour quite close to me, but because the trees had a lot of foliage on them at the time, um, I wasn't able to see what it was. I was pretty certain it was a person. So I yelled at them and they kind of disappeared and didn't make any sound. Now, the site, again, was big enough that this was a reasonably remote part of the forest. If something bad had happened to me, I was quite a ways from any help. As it turned out, there had been a, a homeless person living on the site. Now, I accidentally stumbled across a tent one day, and I suppose it was uh, because of the, same, the presence of the same person. So that makes me less worried about it, knowing that it was just someone trying to find a bit of a space to be. So those are my various tales associated with uh, working on a site that had been uh, a former Victorian asylum uh, and a place which had been uh, a, uh, basically a source for the American eugenics program. It's very clear that some very bad things have gone on there. I certainly don't do not mean to uh, trivialize any of it, but it's just one of those strange cases where I got bad vibes from aspects of the site when I was there. I didn't quite know why, and I didn't find out um, until much later that something quite bad had happened there. So, to round things off, I'm going to do a short fictional story based on the same theme. This is also about the eugenics program. This is The Pine Barrens Expedition. Pages found in a tin cigarette box in the Pine Barrens. Diary of Dr. Kent Bronwyn of the Tennyson Institute. October 1930, Cross County, New Jersey. October 19th. Almost ran out of gas near Terence. It had been several hours since I'd last passed a town, but then I'd barely called Terence a town. Out here, folks like to live far apart, with plenty of pines between them. They're hillbillies in the original sense of the term, descendants of people who were on the wrong side of General Washington's war. Now the memory of that poor decision lives on out here in the barrens. Wizened, stunted trees shaded the gas station. This was a place for malformed things. The rotting acidic soil here can support nothing more. I pulled up to the battered pump. A door made of planks opened. A toothless old-timer filled up my car as I waited. I didn't get a good look from inside, but her skull looked like a class three. I was itching to get my equipment from the trunk, to measure her cranium and run her through a questionnaire, establish her IQ. Patience. There will be time enough for that soon. Shoeless kids chased each other in and out of the cabin, round the knotty trees. Their faces were smeared with grime. Weeblehead, they yelled at one another. You're a weeblehead. I jotted the term down in my notebook. Weeblehead. The oldster raised an eyebrow. Perhaps my note-taking struck her as an alien, unnatural activity. Weebleheads are critters, she said slowly. Live out there in the woods. Short fellows with weird, soft, swollen heads, like pumpkins. The kids are always hunting them. It's their favourite game. I stayed my pen. Do they ever catch them? She spat. No, they're clever enough critters. Never get caught. But I know they're out there. Her credulity annoyed me. Such simplistic thinking was evidence of how important our mission is. If the Weebleheads were anything more than backwood superstition, they are doubtless a corruption of some true memory of a family with some genetic abnormality. Hydrocephaly, perhaps. I did not try to enlighten her. 
Instead, I smiled and paid for my gas. She lumbered back inside. As the door swung, I caught a glimpse of a filthy interior, uneaten food rotting in bowls on the floor. Animals, I wrinkled my nose. When this is all wrapped up, I must remember to send a copy of my report to Klaus and our Berlin colleagues. Their work is so far behind ours. I reached the Kellicutt family hovel, I can think of no better word to describe it, just before dark. To my annoyance, I'd had to leave the car back in Terence, not long after filling it. I hadn't realised that the woods this far in were inaccessible by road. Of course, I'm not surprised. I chose the Kellicutts because they promised to show the most degenerate strain of pineys there is. It makes perfect sense that they would exist in such primitive isolation. I rented a flatboat from a local, and after struggling with my cases and equipment, took off from the shore and into the barrens. Soon, even the frontier modernity of Terence was falling behind me. I seemed to be descending into the world of prehistory. Blood-red water, coloured by the mud of the swamps, was choked on both banks by gnarled roots. Overhead, creepers and cedar needles blocked the sunlight, and the acidic taint of pine pitch clogged my nostrils. It was long after dark when I saw the ghost-like glow of the Kellicutt's cabin dancing among the black trunks. Louise Kellicutt herself aided me in landing the damn craft. My entrance was undignified, my jacket ripped and stained with sap, and my control of the crude boat inexpert. A matriarch of the clan whistled, and three of her brood emerged from their cabin to rescue my luggage, as she herself pulled the flatboat to the crumbling jetty. My embarrassment, however, was almost matched by my curiosity at finally getting a glimpse at the family. I had chosen well. They would make an ideal subject for study. Louise herself was broad and masculine, her neck and shoulders were wide, her skin tough and torn by the harshness of backwoods life. Her skull I judged to be perhaps a class four, but again there would be plenty of time to be more precise on this matter. Her face showed not an iota of the delicacy of a civilised urban woman. Some of this, of course, must be put down to the rigorous life in the barrens, but a glance at the children reassured me as to the importance of genetics in the matter. Put quite simply, they were deformed. Black eyes peered from pale, mostly hairless heads. Gaping mouths gibbered, lacking teeth. Deciding age or gender was quite impossible, as they all lacked distinguishing features and were dressed in featureless rags. Scientific curiosity aside, the look of them gave me quite a turn. They jabbered and squealed about us as we carried my things into the house. Louise had been fussing about me, her natural sense of rural hospitality in full flight, she hadn't yet asked me who I was or why I had come, though I was certain she was full of curiosity. So there, in their filthy shack, surrounded by broken furniture and under a roof patched with moss, I introduced myself. I told them I was Dr. Kent Bronwyn of the Tennyson Institute of Minnesota. We were in the field of eugenics, you see, the betterment of the stock of mankind. Louise and her offspring stared at me with huge, cow-like eyes. Humans could be thought of the way we think of cattle, I said. We mate the best bulls with the best cows, don't we? They understood that just fine. So why not do the same with humans? After all, not all humans are created equal. Science assures us of this. So why not examine which humans are the best and prevent the lesser breeds from passing on their less-than-ideal characteristics? 
Something akin to understanding bloomed in Louise's face. She was interested. Yes, indeed, I said. It was a fantastic new world we were building. My institute was the first of its kind anywhere in the world, and we had the ear of the government. We had programs already in place throughout the Midwest to stop undesirable folks from breeding. My heart thumped as I formed the next words. This part was delicate. The reason I was here, I said, the reason I was here was to collect information. See, we need a lot of data before we can make such big decisions. I took out all my instruments, my rulers, cranial compasses and questionnaires and showed them. The children grabbed them and ran about the room with them, yelling. I licked my lips, swallowed, thought about the watery miles that lay between here and civilization, and told Louise I had come to study her family because they were, by reputation, the most degenerate example of humanity I could come across. I had one foot pointing towards the door, and one hand on a pistol in my pocket in case things turned ugly. Louise laughed and said, Wonderful! She put a hand on my shoulder. This life! She waved a hand about the cabin. These creatures! Gestured towards the cretinous children. Look at them! What kind of life can they expect? I'm glad you've come. Study them as much as you can. Do whatever you need to. And if you can fix it so as they never pass on their line, so much the better, I say. I sunk into a rotten chair. I couldn't believe it. The subjects of eugenic studies didn't usually take to being subjects so well. Louise started fixing some tea as the children played. Outside, the first peeper frogs of the night began their swampy chorus. I didn't get any work done that night. We ate a rude meal prepared by Louise. My stomach turned at the plate, what appeared to be fried okra and moss rubbed up against some unidentified forest game. Small enough to be squirrel, though people out here ate skunk and anything else they could get a hold of. After dinner, Louise sat with me in front of the cabin. Naked stars winked at us, more of them than I ever saw back in the city. I pulled in a cigar, its tip glowing red as the fireflies that buzzed just beyond the light of the lantern. Tell me more about this great new world you're fixing to construct, said Louise. In the darkness, her eyes held mine for a long time. Flustered, I told her about our dreams for the society of the future. No disease, no deformity, no mental aberrations of any kind, I told her. And no poverty. Poverty, we believed, was caused by people of less than ideal genes living up to their wretched destiny. A genetically inferior person, even when given every material and societal advantage, would nonetheless bring ruin upon themselves eventually, dooming their family and the society they lived in to generations of misery. All that was needed to achieve the alleviation of this misery, I said, was a willingness to overcome the inherent soft-heartedness of mankind. Of course, this greater good will require the application of some cruelty at first. Sterilizations, euthanasia for more difficult cases, criminal individuals and the like. It is only when we can look past the unpleasantness of these methods that we can achieve the fruits of success. Something splashed in the river. A frog, perhaps. I meant what I said, Mr. Bronwyn, Louise said, sucking on an unmarked brown bottle. There's something here that needs to be stopped. Ended. You've seen what's wrong with those kids. They're certainly an extreme case of the degeneration that's common round here, I said, choking on cigar smoke. Her directness was disarming. It's clear that isolation and inbreeding among the Pine Barn families have created... It ain't the families round here, she snapped. 
It's our family. We have a problem peculiar to us, if you take my meaning. I didn't, but kept my peace, and finished my cigar in uncomfortable silence. Something flopped from an unseen boulder and slid into the water. It sounded large. I scribble these notes by candlelight in my wretched corner of the Calicut cabin. The children snore, their breath making weird, unearthly sounds in the night. Tomorrow my real work begins. October 20th. I hardly dare hope that anyone from the Institute shall believe what has occurred to me today. I may never live to see these notes delivered to the Institute. Again and again, my mind turns over the miles of swampy desolation that lie between myself and civilization. I think of my car, left unclaimed on a Terrence street, empty and rusting as the weeks go by. Nobody shall report my disappearance, of that I am sure. The Institute will send somebody, but I am not expected back for months, and the wheels of their machinery turn slowly. It may be too late for me. Louise was as good as her word. She allowed me all the time I wanted to work with the children. I studied their craniology, measured their skulls, the shape of their noses, the width of their brows. My initial thoughts were confirmed, but added to this I noticed several odd features. It may seem trivial to note these now, but to whoever finds these notes, they may help reveal the origin of the horror that dwells here. The children broadly fit into the category 3 subtype, but their enlarged occipital cavities were unlike anything I'd ever noted before. Besides this, they seemed to be suffering from some kind of skin disease similar to ichthyology, that is, a horny layer of scale-like coverings that affected their neck and arms particularly. This was most well-developed in the oldest boy, who had raised bony ridges running the length of both forearms. Though clearly Caucasian, each child also had a somewhat greyish hue to their skin. Their speech I found to be underdeveloped. Their backwoods patois, a thick slurring dialect, made it difficult to be sure. But compared to their mother, they were degenerate in this area. Their IQ I ascertained to be far lower than average, though nothing below what would be expected among the people of the barons. Indeed, I was happy to assign the Kellicott family as merely an extreme case of the understood New Jersey degeneration when an incident occurred that proved me wrong and rattled me to my core. The youngest boy was running across the yard towards my boat when he took a tumble. As it seemed he had sprained his ankle, I helped him up. I placed one hand upon his back and felt something thick wriggling under his ragged shirt. Without thinking, I hitched the shirt up slightly and with an involuntary yell, dropped the child to the ground. He had a tail. This was no vestigial tailbone, the sort which are occasionally removed by doctors. This was a wide muscular growth shooting up the boy's back, covered in greasy scales and topped by a bony ridge. Shocked by the fall, the boy turned his face to me and scowled. His lips drew back and his teeth, which I had examined previously and found to be unexceptional, now transformed to vicious pointed needles. My vision swam. I turned my head, saw the other two children watching me from the shack. They hissed, a weird, inhuman sound unlike anything I had ever heard before. Their eyes bugged, protruding from their scruffy faces like the lidless eyes of a fish. Behind them, grotesque tails waved. I ran. My only thought was to leave the property far behind. A narrow trail led north of the shack, so I followed it and plunged into the darkness of the forest. 
I was certain I could hear small feet pounding behind me. Fall leaves crunched beneath my feet, the scent of pine mixed with the smell of fear. I twisted this way and that, hemmed in, here by the thick jagged conifers, there by the dark blackness of bottomless pools and streams. I could hear and feel the children keeping pace with me. They wove in and out of the forest as though they were one with it. Once I saw, from the corner of my eye, a gaunt, scrabbling figure shinny up a tree in seconds. A moment later, a face split by a frog-like grin filled with needles dropped from above, inches from my face. I batted the creature away and screamed. They were playing with me. They could take me whenever they wanted to. Open sunlight struck me like a punch in the face. I cleared the forest, only to find myself on a rocky ledge. Far below, lazy creeks wound their way through the endless barrens. There was nowhere to go. Speeding out of the woods, my foot thumped against a fat root. Pain exploded in my leg, and the ground swung crazily, rising to meet me. They had me now. But they never came. I lay for a long time, feeling my breath pull at my scorched lungs, listening to the twitter of the chickadees above and the distant squawks of sparrowhawks. I counted to one hundred, then two hundred. Still, I was alone. I tested my leg. It was swollen, the pain intolerable. Walking was impossible. Hours passed. As I write this, the sun is dropping below the distant curtain of pines. Darkness is gathering. I can see them in the trees. I know they're near. They're waiting. I saw one of them through the twisted branches, a live fish flopping obscenely in its mouth. It stared at me, then disappeared. Date unknown. They found me. Brought me back to the cabin. Louise was waiting. She reassured me that she believed in my mission. Utterly. There are better types of mankind, she said. But betterness is relative. Out here, it is her spawn that are best equipped for life in the pines. Her use of the word spawn fills me with horror. As these frog-like faces leer and jabber at me. But it is her statement that I can be improved changed to fit in with the family that most causes me to tremble. Her eye lit upon the rack of knives that sit over the stove as she said this, and sweat burst from my every pore. I don't know how much longer I can keep writing. Excerpt from report of Dr. Klaus Heidegger of the Tennyson Institute, January 1931. Despite circumstantial evidence that there had, until recently, been several others dwelling in the homestead, Mrs. Calicut appeared to have only one son. This unfortunate was perhaps the most degenerate example of impure breeding I have ever seen in 20 years of research. His hands were mangled and deformed, his face a horrible mass of puffy white flesh wholly lacking in the recognisable features of a human being, as though scar tissue had been allowed to work its undisciplined havoc upon a smashed face. His swollen tongue was trapped in its prison-like trap of a mouth, unable to articulate even the fragmented thoughts of its feeble, broken mind. It proved impossible to even assign a skull category. With the approval of Mrs. Kellicutt herself, our team took the unusual step of bypassing the usual sterilisation procedure and actioned immediate euthanasia. Mrs. Kellicutt claims never to have met Dr. Bronwyn, Inquiries as to the circumstances by which he left his vehicle outside Terence are still ongoing. End of extract.
And that brings this episode of Wide Atlantic Weird to a close. Wherever it is you listen to the show, do us a favour and give us a review and a rating. Even better, if anything weird has ever happened to you, send us the story and it might get read out. You too could become a podcast celebrity. So, till next time, this is Kean signing off from the bunker. Stay safe out there, and thanks for listening. <laughs>